today on More Than a Test, we have the author, Denise Eide. She wrote the book, Uncovering the Logic of English. If your school or district or your child's school is talking about phonics, I guarantee someone is carrying this book around. She takes what is kind of put on as this like big overarching idea of phonics and turns it into something tangible, meaningful. Her book is filled with cognitive dissonance. It has great instruction on how to teach phonics, but what makes this conversation special is she tells us she used to be a balanced literacy person until her kids started hating reading because they couldn't. Then she got deep into the science of reading, put together a book that has changed the lives of so many, helped so many teachers, and is really incredible resource, just an absolutely amazing resource for anyone who wants to understand the science of reading and understand um, patterns in our language and how we learn to read. And Amira, we love this book. We all keep it on our desks. We think it's amazing. And this conversation is really not one to be missed. Denise, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to start by telling a story of something that happened this week to me. So um, at Amira, we're often applying either to RFPs or dealing with state agencies or district agencies to let them buy our product, right? And when we're in these conversations, we often deal with either someone who is very deeply uh, dedicated to the science of reading or um, really anti-ed tech, and they have lots of really big questions about how we're um, implementing things and the strategies we're choosing. And I was in a meeting with our chief, um, uh, our CEO, our chief uh, officer, and then also our um, chief data scientist. And there was a question that came up about a choice we'd made about um, phonics. And I'm not joking. Everyone in the meeting, there were six of us, pulled out your book like it is our Bible <laughs> and was like, well, what does Denise say? And I'm not joking. That's how we talk about you. Like we all know you and we all keep this at our desk. Uh, so let me just first of all say thank you for your book. And if you don't know, there are people everywhere who are now engaging with science of reading for all kinds of readings, for all kinds of reasons, who talk about your book. Is this the experience you're having with your book that like everybody uses it for? It is the Bible. <laughs> I don't know if I put it that way, but I have seen this huge surge uh, in this book. And so when I go to conferences, people come up to me to thank me for uncovering the logic of English. And so, yeah, there's just been this trend since 2020 uh, towards this book, which is exciting because funny story, when I wrote it and we put it out, it didn't take off right away, but I thought it'd be easy. Just put it out on Amazon. It'll go out. It'll change the world. <laughs> but it's taken some time, but it's so affirming to hear other people be like, wow, this makes sense because it did to me too. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> well, and I love that you bring up 2020 as like this resurgence because you published it in 2011. And I think anybody who's gotten into science of reading recently or listened to the podcast, um, sold the story, like you were like holding the torch while the rest of the world was like going down this balanced literacy path. And, and we didn't all find your book. Um, so it, it, it's just incredible that this is kind of finding its new moment. Um, and the way that I describe it to people, and I'm curious if this is intentional too, is it does two things. Like one, it'll give you so much cognitive dissonance um, around like what you think is actually happening in reading. Like the statistics mm. about like, I think 68% of eighth graders are not reading at, at the right level. So that ideal, ability of like, oh my God, this really is a crisis. And then if you were a child of the nineties and spent your whole nineties hearing things like, well, it's an exception to the rule. And then you realize nothing is actually an exception or not nothing, but there are very few exceptions. Is that kind of the intention was to be like, hey, this is what you think, but this is what the way it really is. But you, that is spot on. And that was my experience in reverse uh, of I learned the phonograms and rules as I was trying to help my sons learn how to read. And it just changed my 
whole perspective on the language because, right, I was taught everything is an exception. I thought phonics was a learning style. I thought it was crazy as an educator. I had all of these thoughts about the language. But when I learned these things to help remediate my sons, I'm like, whoa, the, the language actually is different. Why do we have to be diagnosed with a disability to learn how English works? Which is why I put together the Logic of English presentation, uh, which is kind of where this all got started. And then I find out all these people have these experiences and I look up the literacy statistics and immediately I was like, okay, part of the problem here is how are we defining phonics? Exactly. Exactly. I think that's totally true. So I'm sorry, I didn't know this about you. And I think this will be really affirming to a lot of educators. You were not like gung-ho phonics from the beginning. This was something that like also was something that was cognitive distance. You had, you learned that this was, that this is the way English works. I assume that you've known this all your whole life. <laughs> I have not known this my whole life. I did learn a little bit of phonics. I don't know if everyone our age did, but I remember my first grade teacher teaching me A says as an apple and C says K as in cat. But I also remember being like the word school looks like it says stool. English is so dumb because I somehow just naturally learned to read from the little tiny bit of phonics I had. But I, in graduate school, which I went to the University of Minnesota curriculum and instruction, I wrote a paper saying that phonics was a learning style and helpful for some students and not others. And I actually never finished my master's in curriculum and instruction due to some life things that interrupted uh, my studies, but I'm glad I didn't because I literally would be on the opposite side of this debate. It was because my children struggled with reading and I watched my twin sons misread is, 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 and has, is, has, et cetera, forever. They could not read a real book wow. that I began to search. How do I help them? So oh it, it was in that search, right, that I find something based on, I can read curriculum, by the way, like it's a novel. It's a great novel. <laughs> and it's there I found some of the OG uh, family of work. And I began to see there's all these rules we're teaching kids who are diagnosed with dyslexia. And I was like, this helps me. This would have helped my adult literacy students. Why didn't I know this? And that's really where this all began. I will tell you that I've made my husband who works in finance read this book now too. And my favorite part was like, he read it over two days and every, every night he'd be like tapping me being like, did you know that at the end of the word S usually makes a z sound that it's not an exception. That's a rule. Did you know that? And I'm like, well, I read the book. So, <laughs> you know? so um, I appreciate that. Okay. So one of the things that you said is like, one of the problems we have is that is the way we're defining phonics. Will you tell me what you mean by that? Yeah. I think when we say phonics, we're not all saying the same thing. I, I think we're at a moment in history, too, where everyone agrees, right? Kids should learn that SS is in socks. What we don't agree on is that S also says Z. Yep. And so even in the science reading community, there's this movement towards heart words. And one of the things I've been doing is really thinking about how to place this message uh, now and this time. Because if you put a heart over S saying Z, you're actually dismissing over 20,000 words in the English language found in Finder, Devin Kern's research. And so that's a lot. That's like 23% of the time, or wait, right. sorry, 43% of the time. It's not an exception. But I think it begins to show, right? Like, why do we have kids guess? Why do we have kids memorize whole words? It's because our phonics rules aren't complete enough. 
Okay. I feel like you're telling me a few different things that have come up a lot lately. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. So I'm sorry. I haven't actually heard of this heart words thing. Will you tell me more what you're talking about? Yeah. So one of the ideas, right, is, well, one of the things that happens in schools is students will be asked to drill whole words, words like have, for example, because it looks like it says have, because they're taught a silent E rule that the vowel says it's long sound because of the E. Yeah. Well, now with heart words, instead of drilling this whole word, they're drawing hearts over the exception, decoding the rest of the word that's regular. That makes sense to decode what you can decode. But what I'm questioning is, why are we drawing a heart over parts that actually are showing up thousands of times in the language? And so one of my missions most recently has been to demonstrate to educators why when you draw this heart or say something's an exception in a high frequency word, it actually applies to tens of thousands of additional words. It's not exceptions. So we need to expand this basic phonics concepts that we teach emerging readers. Okay. And I want to drill into this a little bit deeper because I think your book does this really well. Um, One of my favorite parts is that chat, the chart that you have of all the different letters and then the different sounds um, that that letter might make, right? Or depending on where it appears and things like that. Is that what you mean by expand what we talk, what we're teaching kids is that we shouldn't just say S makes, instead we should talk about all the different ways that S appears. Is that what you're telling us? Yes. And I do think we need to look at its frequency and high frequency words because the high frequency words students read frequently. (laughs) And then we need to look and if, right, then we'd be saying that's an exception frequently and it's frequency in the language. And based on that, we should choose a expanded set of letter sound correspondences. Like in that chart, that's my proposal for them uh, to teach students because then they can decode any word. And this is also one of the things I think is really interesting is I like to ask educators, are decodable readers and real books totally different classes of books? And what do you say? Well, a lot of people say yes, but what I say is we should be using decodable readers as part of our scope and sequence and and then teaching enough phonics so every book becomes decodable. Right. So let me ask you a question because I deal with a lot of different curriculum. One of the things that Amira is that we're a curriculum agnostic, so we can change our scope and sequence. We can change the way we report depending on this on, on the curriculum. And one of the things that we see is there are sometimes where you'll see S is taught as, and then it comes again later. And that's when you teach this. And then sometimes you teach it together. Like here's, and when, when you think about how it should be taught, what, what's your expertise? Would you say that it doesn't matter as long as it gets taught or is it, should it be all done at once? Or again, it's all back to frequency. If it's going to come up enough, they should just be taught at the same time that S makes both of these sounds. What do you think? I I recommend, I prefer teaching them at the beginning together. So teaching S as that way, when you're out and about and is, you know, students will begin decoding words with those first sounds, right? Absolutely. Present a scaffolded scope and sequence. But when they see a word like is, then you can say, oh, there's the second sound because they're certainly going to ask you, oh, it says closed. You know, they're going to misread it. Well, now you can explain it. And so I think that's super important to front load all that information, but then scaffold the decoding skills. Otherwise, too, it's like you have to keep relearning those sounds. And these sounds are something we want to know for the rest of our lives. We need them for decoding and spelling. 
It's funny. I have young children. My kids are three and they're, my daughter in particular is starting to explore reading and like, we've done some stuff with sounds and already she's called me a tricky trickster. Like she said to me, you, you told me this makes this sound, but I see, I know this letter and you told, I think it was E and it was like two E's and we, and I, I think the word was seed and she, and she was close enough to already be like, I think you tricked me. I, th- I think you tricked me. I think that there's something to that too, of the more information we can give kids, the more they've heard it. It's crazy the things they remember long-term, even if they aren't encountering those words yet. Um, can I ask you one question about what you're saying about frequency? Because I feel like I hear you saying two different things and I want to make sure I hear you clearly. When you say the frequency of, of a sound, you mean not just like how many words have that sound, but also how often that those kinds of words are used in the language, right? So when we're talking about high frequency words, so have, have, is it, kind of has a different weight to it because we see it so often. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So with have, we should be teaching English words don't end in V, add an E. This is another reason for this uh, E in English. And it happens in over 1,200 words, but it also happens in high-frequency words like have. Now, we have phonograms like PN in pneumonia, We don't need to teach that to our emerging readers because they're not likely to read the word pneumonia in pneumothorax. But once they understand what a phonogram is, when they see those words, then they'll go, oh, there's a new phonogram. I wonder what language that's from. So that's what I mean by choosing our set uh, thoughtfully for emerging readers. That said, we should never say PN is an exception, saying "Mm, it's not. And in fact, we should be ready to be able to say, did you know all the words with this phonogram PN have something to do with air? Wow, that's really awesome. And and if we're not ready, let's be ready to say to kids, I don't know, but I bet you we could go learn about that word together and figure this out. I think that's another issue I'm coming up with lots of teachers again raised in the 90s, didn't get phonics instruction in any sense of the word. Maybe we got A is A. And they're afraid to say to kids, I don't know. And we have to. We have, we, it's going to take time to learn all of these rules, not exceptions. And so learning alongside our kids is, is a safe and happy place to be. Laura, that is an excellent point. And in fact, when I present to educators, what I tell them is if all you take away from this presentation is to say, I'm not going to say that's an exception anymore. That's fantastic. I'm going to look it up because that's what we would do about science. And I think culturally, this is one of the problems we have with reading, right? We dismiss things as exceptions, but if we just culturally made the shift, I don't know the rule. I'll look it up. We would make huge progress. Um, I think that that's, I think that's totally true. And that's exactly what I think about your book, right? Like it is the story of don't use exceptions anymore. Let's learn some rules, even if you didn't learn them before, but the book is not all that you've done and not all that, you know, like you're so much more expansive. And I feel like you are, I'm so excited for the fact that you're like leading our movement in a lot of ways around science of reading, because I think you held the torch for so long. So let's talk about, first of all, you've got this book. Let's talk about the kid's book now. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love Um, to. (laughs) So when did your children's book come out? So I have a new book, How Your Brain Learns to Read, that came out uh, earlier this year in 2023. And this book was inspired uh, when I heard Dr. Stanislas Dehane speak at the Plain Talk conference. And I have had this vision for years of creating a book to help children and the adults who are supporting them learning to read understand and be empowered by how their brain learns to read because there's so much that the neuroscience has to say, right, about, yeah, we need to sound out words. And if we memorize whole words, we're using a whole different part of the brain than the part of the brain uh, associated with skilled reading. 
So this just came out. I'm super excited about it. I think it's really great. I think it's exciting to see, like, again, this opportunity to start with kids and also adults saying, you know, reading isn't natural and this is hard work. And, and this is what's happening inside of you. I think is, I think is really valuable. Um, I'm really excited about the book too. Um, in addition to having, so you've got the book that I've already mentioned, the children's book, you also you're, um, have the logic of English publisher. Yeah. Yeah, we have a publishing company that publishes curriculum. So the way I put it is uh, we like to publish pick up and learn materials for teachers and parents and then pick up and teach materials. And some of our materials you'll be able to learn right alongside your kids as you teach them because not everyone knows, right? None of us were taught how English works or very few of us were. <laughs> Well, and I think that, um, you know, we, you and I met at the Reading League conference and the experience that I had is I ended up meeting a lot of parents there. It wasn't as many teachers as I thought, but many parents whose children have been either um, diagnosed with dyslexia, or they're very far behind in reading and they didn't know what to do. And so I think this thing that you're bringing up of like reading, uh, learning alongside your child is really valuable and important. When I think about the things that I'm like you. I would have thought that in 2011, this book would have saved us all. <laughs> and I truly, I truly mean that. And instead you just keep expanding and growing. And I know how busy you are. Like when you think about like, you'll be successful when, what do you say to that? Well, this might surprise you, but I, uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that this year. Really? I have. This has been a big part, even at Reading League. Uh, after Reading League, I was thinking about this. And the problem right? The number of students who can't read is so large in the United States. And you see the science of reading movement moving through. But I think at Reading League, we heard a third of U.S. schools have switched to science or reading curriculum. That's less than half. It's going to take time. Um, I was really learning that this movement is going to continue. But again, scientific revolution and change takes time. And so uh, what does this mean for me? What it means for me is I want to create a team of people, which is what Logic of English, the company, is about, to continue this work beyond me. Uh, and that's what Logic of English is all about, developing a team of people who are publishing materials around the science of reading that teachers can pick up and learn and pick up and teach, and that this will go on. Because uh, this isn't about me. This is about empowering two-thirds of the nation's students who are struggling with reading. <laughs> we need to change that. Everyone deserves to learn how to read. It's so interesting you say that because I'll tell you two things that I've seen just recently. So deep science of reading schools, people who are on the forefront. I, again, I get to be in classrooms all the time, and I watched a small reading group. And I, I know that this entire school had been through like OG training, right? And the teacher was was had the books open, and she was working with this group. Um, and I just watched her all of a sudden say it. She just said, well, what do you think the word might be? What would you guess? And I was like, oh my God, this is how deeply it's in us too. It's not even just like the schools are buying the curriculum, we're getting the training, but because for so long we were encouraging guessing, it's very hard to change that behavior as a teacher. And so um, even with the one third, I, I, I share your like, oh my gosh, we got to keep going. We have to keep moving. This is going to take time. And let me tell you something. I think it was Katie Miles, but it might've been someone else who said to us, her biggest fear is that in five years, we'll have made all this change to science of reading and look back and still not have the results that we expected. What do you think about that comment? It's interesting. It gives me pause, but I have to 
stay positive. Like I think one of the things, like when you work in a field that has this much social impact and there's so many people, right, who are struggling with literacy. And I take this very personally. Um, just a little back of, before I answer your question, I grew up with a mom, a single mom who struggled with addiction. And I say this because I didn't struggle with reading. I was one of the one third who didn't struggle. I don't totally understand why, but I understand very personally that had I, I wouldn't have gotten help because it's parents who intervene for their kids and my mom wouldn't have been able to, and therefore my life would be very different. So I'm very motivated by this personal story. Does this make sense to oh, make yeah. change? But where I stand right now, just like looking at where we're at, I've spoken at conferences and, you know, to organizations for over a decade, 12, 13 years now about the logic of English, meaning how English works. I see the change in front of me. I see the um, the number of people who know more about the science of reading, who know more about an accurate, complete picture of English phonics, how morphology plays in. It's still not a majority of the room, but it's so much more of the room. And you see this change in progress, and that gives me hope. And But I also recognize this is long-term. As you said, it's cultural change. It's, it's big. It's cultural change in how we see the language, how we understand how we learn to read, and that's going to take even more time. So I kind of balance those out. I'm encouraged. And I'm also looking to the long picture. How do I create a team and empower a team to continue this work? Um, I think that's really great. And I will say that I have, it's, as much as like, it didn't work out the way that I expected, the fact that your book is from 2011 gives me a lot of hope because it gets a resurgence, right? Like mm. it feels like, okay, it may have taken that, that took us nine years to figure out that this woman is a genius and like, is going to save us all. And now like, okay, I can, I can stay, I can stay the course. I can stay strong for another nine years as we get more people on board and figure it out. So I hear you and I appreciate it. I, I think it's hard and I think it's, it's, it can be a lot for a lot of people. I mean, I think a lot of teachers, it's so empowering to hear you say that you weren't necessarily a science of reading believer at the beginning either, because that's another thing I think teachers are feeling with is like frustration, stress, guilt, all of the things about the fact that like they followed a curriculum, they were told this was bought for them. They were told this was going to help and it, and it just didn't, you know, and I think that that's a real thing that teachers we, deal with. We can't teach what we don't know. Laura, your, your comments are bringing tears to my eyes. And I happen to have right behind me here this picture of uh, Bob Sweet. I don't know if you know who he is. I do. But so, tell us. Uh, so Bob Sweet uh, is, some people have described him as a literacy giant. He passed away in 2019, but Bob was my mentor. He worked uh, in Washington uh, at the highest levels, trying to disseminate the inf information and about science of reading. He drove a lot of the funding behind the neuroscience. He was connected worldwide with literacy, but he became my mentor. Uh, interesting story. He read Uncovering the Logic of English, contacted me, reached out. That was how we connected, went out to dinner. And he literally told me that this book's going to change the world. And it shocked me. I actually accidentally spilled my water all over him because I was so shocked. <laughs> but the thing is, right, like he worked his whole life for these changes and didn't see them. Wow. But, like he didn't see them in mass. But now we're starting to see these changes happening. I think it takes so many, many people, so many, many fields, right, working all together to educate the public 
about science of reading, neuroscience of reading, cognitive science, all these pieces. And they're coming together, I think. <laughs> I think they are too. And I appreciate that. And I love that story. And I think he would too. I think that's really great. Um, okay. I want to move to talking about you, but I promised I would ask my company my team asked if I, we would ask what your favorite English rule is, because we all have ones that like from your book that we say, like, this is the one that like means a lot to us. Do you have one that's your favorite? My favorite, it might be uh, right at the moment, English words don't end in I, U, V, or J. And I have two stories uh, that make it my favorite. One, I like to interview students about the impact of the rules. And I had a five-year-old tell me that this was his favorite rule because then he knew that words like spaghetti weren't from English and he'd have his teacher look them up and he learned spaghetti was from Italian. <laughs> that is so great. I love it. That's amazing. Um, and I love that it's like that's a rule I would not necessarily pick for a five-year-old and to have a five-year-old bring that up is really great. And my second story comes from when I was speaking to a group of honor students at our local high school and I shared this rule and how it applied to words like have and mob and comprehensive. And I literally had an honors high school honors English student jump out of his chair and go, why didn't someone tell me that? Right. That is a great story. I love that. Um, and I think a lot of kids feel like that. I know I felt like that the first time I read your book. Um, I think that's really great. Okay. So let's talk about you. So like I said, for a lot of us, you have written this book that means so much. Um, did you start as an educator? Were you a teacher at one point? Yeah, I began teaching uh, English as a second language. Uh, and I taught mostly adult Eastern European students. And so they would always ask me, why is it spelled like this? And I'd say, that's an exception. And then they'd go, well, in Russian or Ukrainian, this is how it is. And this is why. Oh, so they, so in Russian and Ukrainian, they had, they had the logic, but we don't. Um, okay. In Minnesota, you were teaching um, Eastern European second language learners? I was, <laughs> yes. Is there a large population in Minnesota? Uh, up in the Twin Cities, yes. Oh, really? I had no idea. Okay, so that's what you did. And then at what point did you change? At what point? It sounds like it was around your kids. How old were your kids when you realized you've got to learn something new? Yeah, it was really when my boys were probably six, seven, eight, and were not reading. And I believed in whole language. I surrounded them with books. I read to them from birth. They loved books. And as they couldn't, they could read Matt Sat, but they couldn't read a real book. And as the years went on, I'd bring out books to read and they'd cry. And this broke my heart. And I went on this right frantic search as we do as parents, lots and lots of dead ends. But it was this OG curriculum that I was just reading. I ordered lots of curriculum, lots of different things, you know, consulted, read. Um, but that was the turning point for me. And then I taught them these more complete phonograms and spelling rules, used them to analyze words, and they could read one of them in three months and the next one in six months. All the chapter books they were listening to as audiobooks. Oh it was like gosh. a miracle. So you like like turned around your kids' reading trajectory in three to six months. For them, yeah, I did. And that I mean it was what we did every morning. It was the most important thing because I wanted them to be able to read. <laughs> Sure enough, you want your child to read. That makes sense. Yes. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit about the path on the way. What did you find on the way that didn't work? Oh, goodness. No one has ever asked me that. Uh, can we skip that question, Laura? Because I'm going to have to like go back and no I can't think right now. Like, no I worries. guess, there were, yeah, 
Let's skip that one. <laughs> okay. So your kids are six, seven, and eight. You found OG. You're doing it every morning and, you, and you're seeing this change. Um, let's talk about your oldest child then. Were they successful too? Like for them, it was like a turning point. Cause I think like a lot of people think, okay, my kids are six. Sure. They can still learn to read, but by fourth grade, they're lost. We often hear that, you know, by third grade, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So my sons have an older sister and she learned this kind of incomplete phonics combined with, you know, that's a sight word, that's an exception. And she learned to read just fine. Um, now this information helped her with spelling, uh, but I would say that it was teaching both of them as my children. I, I observed them more closely and I realized that my older daughter, if she misread is, and I said, that's, you know, as is, and I said, that's an exception. I think it was close enough because are produced in the same part of the mouth, but they're a voiced and unvoiced pair. And she's very intuitive as a person. So I, I say now this is a Denise theory that some students, that estimation is enough. It's close right. enough. But my sons, they're very like, you said it's this, I'm applying it. They're little scientists. I'm like, they were doing a little scientific experiment, a little linguistics experiment as we were reading. But they didn't know that, right? They didn't, instead they thought, oh, I don't know how to read. Reading's hard and internalized that until they learned this more complete phonics. Okay, let me ask you something that I don't think is necessarily covered in your book, but you just kind of alluded to it. So I'm gonna ask this. For the kids who already think they can't read, for the kids who are already saying this is hard, there's a lot of rules they can learn and we're, and we're gonna teach them, but what else do we need to do to convince them that it's not them? Yeah, this brings me back to a conversation I had with one of the boys uh, while we were washing dishes one night because he was really discouraged. And he thought, like, I'm never going to be able to learn how to read. And I was absorbing all this information. And his brother maybe hadn't absorbed the same kind of message internally. So he was more open to it. And I just explained to him, I was like, you know what? I, I've been learning some things. For example, A says at a aw. Did you ever wonder like why ma or water or call? They were all exceptions. Well, you weren't taught correctly. This isn't you. This is how you were taught. And we're going to learn something new. And so I gave him some examples and he was like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that when I was taught that. And then I had to, and you know, we talked through that. And I just, in that conversation saying, this isn't you, this is, you were taught wrong. I felt like he was lighter right. that night. And then he was much more receptive to the information. It reminds me of something that I feel like um, has been really empowering for me as a parent is that, you know, when you tell your kids you're sorry, you teach them like to be, to be able to say sorry. You teach them a lot of different things when you say that you're wrong. And I think as adults, we, that's, this is also kind of like a new thing for our generations, accepting that we're wrong sometimes in front of our kids. And so whether yeah. we were their teacher or someone else, their teacher saying, Hey, you didn't get this the way you should have. We're going to get it now. And then you're going to be able to do this. And that's, that's what we were supposed to do from the beginning. I think is, I think is really valuable. So when did it change from like your kitchen table to you writing a book? Yeah. So I, the first thing I did is I went and I put together a presentation that I called the logic of English because I, I also became a better speller as I taught my kids to read. Right. It, it totally revolutionized my ability to spell and my relationships to spell check. And so I saw the connections to spelling, to reading, 
and then to my adult literacy students. So I put together a one-hour presentation called The Logic of English, and I began giving this to local schools, private schools, the public school, um, homeschool conferences. And at that moment, I had this experience where all these people would tell me their stories. I struggle with reading. My husband struggles with reading. My brother. And I was like, it seems like everybody has a connection to struggling. That's when I looked at the literacy statistics. Wow. And I was blown away because prior to that, I thought it's, a, it's not a majority. It's a minority of people who struggle with how we learn to read because that's just what I thought. And at that moment, I had people in my life who challenged me to write something and to make a difference. And I was like, no, 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 I'm busy. And I finally agreed to write Uncovering the Logic of English, thought that would be the end. <laughs> and, and then Bob read it and he encouraged me to write curriculum that change wouldn't happen without tools. And other people were like, could we have elementary curriculum? We're using this, you know, essentials in our school. And that all led to here. Wow. So it's just like walking through the doors of what was needed. And so let me ask you a little bit more about this presentation. So you just like showed up at schools and were like, Hey, I've got information. Let me give it to you. Um, I don't remember exactly how all the connections would happen. Right. But it would be more like maybe I applied to speak at a homeschool conference or I'd apply to speak at a private school conference. Cause I like speaking. And then also I'd get connections with someone in town would know I had this and be like, Hey, they talk to the school and be like, you should invite her to share this. That's amazing. I love that. Like it kind of spread around. I, I have a hard time not thinking about all the kids who probably were like dramatically impacted by your one presentation at a homeschool thing or at a private, right? There are so many kids who, who didn't get any of this, right? And maybe you got lucky. You hit that teacher just right. That's really cool to think about the, the little thing that the thing that somewhat seemed like small, maybe at that time compared to what you've done now probably had a lot of impact for some individuals. That's really neat. Um, so then the book comes out in 2011 and, oh, and Bob Sweet, he's, I'm sorry, I'm looking at your book right here. He's quoted on the yeah, front. He is. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, it, and, and at that time, I would say, since 2011, I was teaching at the International School in India and we all had Readers and Writers Workshop. We all had Balanced Literacy like the big books, right? Yeah. So I would say that's a pretty, like, I, I think we were even sending people to New York to go to the trainings for balanced literacy. And so, so how was that for you? Like, were you just sitting there like burning your own fire, like hoping that people like trying to get your book out while this other movement that is just totally missing the point for kids is huge. How, what was that experience like for you in 2011? I think it felt slow and busy. I mean, I think I've always kind of looked at this like, I think this is a really great idea. This revolutionized my life. And for me, right, I didn't invent the phonograms and rules. I'm just trying to communicate them in a really accessible way. And so for me, it was like, this changed my life, but I always saw positive responses. So it was always like, yeah, this is making a difference for me too. This is making a difference for me too. So I think I more just see that momentum maybe building. Does that make sense? And, and I've always been about grassroots. I've always been about empowering parents, teachers, and educators. That's what Uncovering the Logic of English is about. Until a majority of people know this information, we're going to struggle with literacy. 
it shouldn't be locked up, right, with reading specialists or, you know, in a special place. This is how English works. And it was that actual idea that Bob and I talked a lot about because he tried to bring about change from a national level. And we, I'm not saying we don't need that, but my place is really more like, hey, everyone, if this makes sense, <laughs> here's some ideas for your classroom. And everyone pretty much is like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes sense. And I, I haven't, does this No, it does. Question? What's speaking to me is like knowing where your movement is, right? Like I think so often people are overwhelmed by like, I can't have the national impact, so I can't do anything. Or I don't know how, like I'm only one person or whatever. And what I hear from you is like, you know exactly where you want to have your impact and you just, it makes sense. And so let's just keep moving. And from one positive, from one person to one person to one person, which I think is beautiful and inspiring. So I have to ask you, like, now that you are having somewhat of a national impact, like what, what's next? Like, what are you hoping to do next? Yeah, I have lots of ideas on things to write, but really we're building our team. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're building our team and we're I'm really asking the question again, how do we support and expand this information? And we do that through building a team, a strong team of passionate educators who want to get this information out and share it as much as I do. Um, that's really exciting. So just like kind of growing the message, growing your marketing, making sure everyone has access. It's been really it's been an exciting year in that there seems to be a lot out there as far as like open source curriculum and just people like that are kind of your people, right? We just want everyone to know. Does that feel true to you that there are like not only just a lot of people buying into science of reading, but a lot of people who are like willing to put in the elbow grease to get this to teachers? I think so. Yes. And I feel really passionate again about equity. So we put out a lot of free resources as well as, you know, we have curriculum that's paid, that's more complete that helps us support the free resources. But we publish all the phonograms, all the spelling rules on our website for free. We publish even some free activities because we want people to have access. And I see that that mission-minded mindset is true amongst many organizations. And I think that's part of what's building this movement, right? Like it's all these people working together to get this information out. I, I agree. And I think it's it's been really exciting to see all the different ways people are are kind of finding a way to hold their their candle and, and make sure that it, it passes on and passes on down the lane. Even, you know, like as I think we've we're kind of letting go of some of our big publishers or bigger things and saying, we just we just want to do what's right for kids, right? And I think that that's been a lovely message. All right. When you think about this year, I feel like this year has been big for you. <laughs> um and and I feel like your name is everywhere. When you think about this year, what is something that you're really proud of? I'm pausing. There's a lot of pieces for me, but I am really proud of the growth of, <laughs> so, sorry, Laura, give me a moment. You're fine. I'm really proud of the growth of the Logic of English team. Yeah, we've added quite a few people to our staff and they are passionate about getting this message out and it is a delight. All right. A tell me true about delight. Tell me about one person on your team who has either changed you or changed the way you do things. I'm going to name two. Uh, so Megan Sanford, our, uh, our customer success manager, and Brianna Verdon, our brand director, they have just brought so much energy. We've been traveling to conferences together, and we are really forming a partnership uh, with each other uh, to grow these teams. And it has been fantastic. 
Oh, that's amazing. Um, and when you say growing, so how much are, are you growing? Well, we're pretty small. I mean, we're still only like 25 people, but we are, we already have another position. We hired someone who started yesterday. We have someone starting January 1st. We have another position we released today. So it's just this constant addition of people. And we're very different as a company. Um, our shareholders really form the company as a mission minded, uh, organization where we are growing out of our profits and using those profits uh, in, in a social entrepreneur way to solve uh, this problem with literacy. And so it has really freed us to move in the market in a different way. Does that make sense? Because we don't have the same constraints as maybe some other organizations. You're saying you have fewer constraints or different constraints, I guess, because you're not a nonprofit. Uh, yes, different constraints, because we are able to use those profits to grow. So that means we have to grow within our profits. But at the same time, you know, that's what's fueling us to grow, too. We don't have to, we don't have pressure of, you know, shareholder pressure for profit sharing or all these sorts of things in the same ways as some orgs. I think it's really My great to have, go ahead. I don't know if you want to put all that in. That seems kind of outside of this. But. Well, the one thing that I think is interesting is I think that so often people kind of put the, everything in one category or another, right? Like, especially in education, like schools and districts are forced to constantly be asking for like discounts and for things to be cheaper. And the reality is like, you can do good. You can be making money. You can talk about profits and also be talking about reading at the same time. And I'm not sure that always comes across for people. So I think there's a lot of value in how do we find ways to like be held to making money, but also doing good and finding equity as well. So don't, don't underestimate the value of what you're trying to do, I guess is what I'd well, say. Fair. And I think one of the things we're realizing is we do operate in this space very differently because we don't have a sales team. We don't have sales quotas. We're really about putting forward great products, great support, and making sure people have free trials and free samples of those products uh, and the information they need to make good decisions without pressure. And that's our belief. We really, again, from this kind of grassroots way, want to empower people to make good decisions and, and to use tools that are accurate and effective. I also don't want to, I want to make sure that like this, this little thread that has come through for me, it comes through for everyone else where what I heard was um, teaching English language learners from Ukraine, mother to author to grassroots social entrepreneur to like, you know, CEO, like don't underestimate. I think there are a lot of people who have the heart that you have and have some of the ideas that you have, but what you have actually achieved is really beautiful and amazing. And I think inspiring to lots of people. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Laura. We're kind of running low on time. So I'm going to move us to our five questions that we ask every single person. Um, so here we go. Um, and, and again, they're meant to be rapid fire, but you take your time. The first question is, the podcast is called More Than a Test, and we had a reason behind it at Amira, but lots of people hear different things when they hear More Than a Test. When you heard the name of our podcast, what did you think? More Than a Test, that it's how we perform, uh, not actually the test results. Those are just speaking, helping us to drive uh, learning. Oh my God. I just read this crazy article about how like now grades are so inflated because we're so afraid of giving kids a C that like every kid has an A minus average or above or something like that in the Atlantic. And I think you're totally right that it really should be about what we perform, what we have to give, not necessarily the score. I think that was nice. I, I wasn't expecting that. All right. The next one is a lit moment. And what we mean by a lit moment is a moment of you and a book that is either like your happy place or it changed you, or it's something you really hold on to. My favorite book this year is The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. 
And I love this book because it's all about how the Oxford Dictionary was created. It's a novel, so it's engaging, but I learned a lot about dictionaries and words, which, as you all know, I love words. Oh, interesting. I'm going to pick it up. I don't have it. Uh, the best or a piece of technology that you love? Oh, my iPhone. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. changed my life. <laughs> like what, everybody. What are, you, what are you using your iPhone for most? Well, actually, let me adapt. Piece of technology I love. My new iPad with the pencil. Oh, yeah. Uh, that has changed my life because I didn't really use my iPad until we came up with Apple Pencils. And now I want to do all my digital notes and highlight and highlight my books. And yeah, so that's my new technology. That's awesome. The best advice you've ever been given? Oh, wow. <laughs> best advice I've ever, I'm sorry, this is rapid fire. Best advice I've ever been given. This is given. the one that sticks to the most people because they either have a lot of really good advice or none. So just pick one. It's okay. I'm going to give the advice I've been given recently is believe in myself. And I don't even know why I'm saying it because I think it's something my, my coach told me this week. So that's something I'm working on. It's so shocking. It's, it's, um, really inspiring to hear it, but also shocking because you seem like you believe in yourself, but I think that you're probably naming something just about every, at least woman feels no matter how great we, how, what we achieve. All right. And the one book you think everyone should read. Oh, that's not the same as the book is before. Yeah. So before what we were asking is more like, it's often a book that someone picked from their, someone picks from their childhood or something like that, like a lit moment, a moment of you in a book that really means to you. And this is really the book and you can have the same answer for both. It's no big deal. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that there'd be two. I'd still say the Paris Library. That's great. Thanks. I yeah. think you should recommend it. I love it. I'm going to order it right now. So thank you so and much. Speak, yeah. And speaking of women's moments, this is about empowering women. So I love how you tied it, that the believe in yourself with our, our journey as women and as women leaders. Well, thank you for sharing your journey as a mother, as a woman, as an entrepreneur, and as an author of a book that means so much to so many of us. Um, here's hoping this continues to move your movement, but thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.